Well, good morning. My name's Dave. I'm one of the ministers on staff here at Highland Park, and uh, want to welcome you as we continue in our uh, Christmas in a minor, minor Key series. I read an interesting account um, about a Christmas special that was on TV last week, and the person talking about it said that one of the songs that they sang as a part of the Christmas special was John Lennon's Imagine. And I first thought that's a little strange as far as Christmas carols are concerned. You remember the, the word, the song goes like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And it goes on from there. Pretty popular song, never considered it a, a Christmas carol. But I thought, you know what? It really is reflective pretty much of a society that has become very, very secular toward the true meaning of Christmas. And it really is pretty, pretty accurate. Imagine there's no heaven. No hell below us, only sky above us. The last phrase, imagine all the people living for today. That kind of describes where a lot of people are. Christmas in a minor key, maybe it's in a minor key because it is not as much a major key anymore. And so we, we need to see what we can do to help deal with that. Um, we're hearing all about the billboards that are being put up, the billboard that has Santa Claus silhouette, and it says, just like Santa Claus, we're coming to town, and it talks about the atheist convention that will be held in Oklahoma City in, in April. Uh, begins the end of, end of March, April 1st. I thought that was fitting. One of the things that... Okay, that's not very nice. <laughs> but according to Gallup, 95% of Americans will celebrate Christmas, but only 51% describe the holiday as religious. One in four American adults say Christmas is simply a cultural holiday, not a religious holiday. 49% of those who celebrate Christmas believe that the virgin birth is historically accurate, only 49%. We really find Christmas in a minor key. Of course, we're talking about the minor key as we talk about some minor prophets, and Brian talked about last week how that they're minor not because they're not important, but simply because they were shorter books. But I think if these figures are even close to accurate, here's what I think that that means. That means that you likely will have a coworker or a neighbor, possibly a family member, possibly even you, who agree that Christmas is not all that that religious people seem to think it is. And it becomes minor in a lot of ways. So how do we respond? How do we respond in, our, in a secular society in the, 
escalating secularity of, of Christmas. And so that's what I want us to talk about today because we're going to be talking about the joy that we can have as the result of the true message of Christ. That which is lacking in the lives of so many, available to all, but yes, not applied, not accepted, not misunderstood. That's what we're going to be talking about. And you know what? Our first response to that secularization should not be one of surprise. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in a very secular Corinth, reminded them that the message of the cross, and I, I think it's safe here to add to that the message of the manger, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the teachings that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And then Paul says, and they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So when we deal with people that we love who do not understand our approach to Christmas, we have to understand that there is a part that is missing, and that is the part where there has been this encounter with the Spirit of God who has taken residency in their life. And the truth has come to them in a way in which they're able to understand it, believe it, accept it, and respond to it. So we're not surprised when, it, when people don't all agree with us. And I would imagine that there are probably a lot of people who have been fairly offended that we have perhaps assumed that everybody did agree with us. And now they're saying, now it's your turn to find out that we don't all agree with you guys. But we have the responsibility of being able to share the joy that can only be found through the birth of Christ and the rebirth of Christ that comes to us as he is our Savior. Uh, there's a phrase that it's become increasingly meaningful to me. I encountered it in our grief share. And in the grief share, he's talking about how we approach grief and how we process grief and how we deal with grief. And there are a variety of ways in which people deal with grief. And the phrase is, they can't all be right. If they're contradictory, they can't all be right. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. And you know, I've thought about that a lot. When we think in terms of processes, when we think in terms of understanding, the contradictory beliefs that we hear in our society, they can't, it's just logically, they can't all be right. When we hear people say, well, it doesn't matter what we believe, we're all going to go to the same place. That's not logical. That does not compute. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. And so that is, that's why it's important that we understand this as we seek to faithfully follow Christ. Uh, the, the impact of that statement, I think, is this, that living in a secular society is not a new experience for the people of God. We have always been in a minority position. And so it is not unusual the Old Testament prophet that we're going to look at today, Zephaniah, he understood that, he saw that, he prophesied about that to the nation of Ju to Judah, 
the southern tribes. He was their prophet. And it's been said that the book of of Zephaniah predicts both a day of disaster and a day of delight. And and that's, that's important for us to understand. Zephaniah chapter one, verses four to six. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priest, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. What a description. And I think, it's, I think it's a description that's too often too fitting for what we encounter in our world. Zephaniah was talking about a disaster and there are three great moral failures that I see that are, that are addressed in that. And the first of, that, of those great moral failures is this one, idolatry. When he talks about every remnant of Baal worship, do we realize that historically Israel had battled with Baal ever since they came out of Egypt. And in Egypt, they battled with the Egyptian false gods. They battled with that. You go all the way back to Abraham, and Abraham was a minority in his belief in the one true God. And you go all the way back to the ark, there were those that disregarded the preaching of Noah. And you go all the way, all the way back to the Garden of Eden and you find the first murder and you find the first doubt. You find those who were following and those who weren't. It's not a surprise for us, folks. Let's not be so easily offended when somebody says, I don't know that I agree with you. But idolatry was a big issue. Every remnant of Baal, I will destroy, he says. And then you'll notice that phrase, the very names of the idolatrous priests. Zephaniah understood that he was a priest, he was a prophet of God, but there were those who were priests of God, supposedly priests of God, who were, and notice the description, they were bowing down on the roof to worship the starry hosts. They had become astrologers. They had left the God who created the heavens to worship the heavens. And they were people who were supposedly leading people to follow God who were now, who were now mixing the two. This, this allowing these two to blend together. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. That may work well in the kitchen, but it does not work well in our relationship with God. He also says, those who swear by the Lord and who swear by Molech. Then he talks about those who turn back from following the Lord. Backsliding. Those who would turn back, those who at one time did follow, but now they no longer follow. And then the third one, complacency. They neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. You know, have you ever, have you ever battled with any or all of these things? 
do you realize that if there is something that is keeping God out of first place in your life, that's, that's idolatry? Something that is keeping God out of first place? It can be a wonderful thing. It can be your family. It can be your job. It can be your church. But if it's keeping God out of first place, that's idolatry. Let me ask you this. Have you ever followed Christ more closely in the past than you are right now? Is Satan subtly telling you that you don't have to be as picky about your values as you once were? Uh, You don't have to spend as much time in God's word as you once did. You don't have to pray as often as you used to. That's backsliding. That's succumbing to the satanic temptation that says, you know, it's just not that important anymore and I get away from those things that brought me close to God in the first place. Now, how long has it been since you fervently prayed for God's guidance? I mean, you really cried out to God. You said, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And you fervently cried out to God, God, it's not that things are going bad. In fact, things are going well. But God, I really want to know what you want me to do. How long has it been since you had that kind of of prayer time? You see, if it's been a while, then that can become complacency. That is complacency. Zephaniah extended a call to the nation of of Israel and he said, you have to come to repentance. If you don't, you're going to be destroyed. We know from history they didn't and they were destroyed. But then Zephaniah also talks about the day of delight. And the day of delight for Zephaniah is found in God's promise, in God's redemption. You skip over to Zephaniah chapter 3 in verse 14. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will, notice this, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you realize that according to what this verse says, there is a time when God in heaven sings a lullaby about you, that there is a time in heaven when God sings over you. You bring him joy. He sings a song of joy as he thinks about you. That is what God desires for you. God desires you to experience his joy. One of the things that is important for us to understand is when we talk about Christmas, that Christmas in Matthew, in our text today, is that Christ came to overcome everything that overwhelms us. Think about that. Why did Jesus come? He came to overcome 
everything that overwhelms us. Are you feeling overwhelmed today? Understand this. Jesus came to overcome that which overwhelms you. And and I want to be very, very clear here because I know that we have people in our church and there are people in this room this morning who are struggling with great, deep, heavy burdens. And I don't want this to sound glib or easy, but I also want you to hear the truth. Christ came to overcome everything that is overwhelming you here today. That which overwhelms you is not beyond his power. And that is important, and that gives us great joy. The word of joy in the New Testament, the word for joy in the New Testament, literally means calm delight. He wants you to have a calm delight. He has come into the world to overcome everything that overwhelms you so that you will know that calm delight that is his joy. That is important for us to understand. And I think it's important for us to understand this, that Jesus, in addressing his disciples on the night in which he was going to be betrayed and murdered, hours away from the agony leading to his death, In that upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the midst of them facing the fact that Jesus had just said, fellas, I am going to soon die. One of you will betray me and I will die. And they were all trying to figure out who's the betrayer. Is it me? Surely not you. Peter was telling him, no, Lord, you got that wrong. Way to go, Peter. Way to go. And Jesus says, you guys need to understand, in me, you're going to have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation." I might have wanted to be the person who piped up right at that moment and said, about that, can't you just fix that so I don't have to go through with it? Can't you just take that all away? Life would be so much better if I didn't have to go through all of that stuff. He said, I didn't know, I didn't come into the world so that you don't have to go through it. I came into the world to overcome it so that through me, you will be able to endure it and get through it. Not avoid it, but be able to deal with it. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is the story of three kings in search of the one king. I know that's what the song says. We three kings. They weren't kings. They were magi or wise men. We don't know how many there were. We say three because gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they were searching for the king. And though it may be trite, I still like it. Wise men still seek him. And that is important. Now, 
Herod was not too happy. Read in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. And when your king is upset, there is a likelihood that the whole countryside is going to feel the reverberations of that. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I read that rather quickly. I would imagine that it took them a little bit longer to search and come up with the answer to the king's question. The king says, where is this king going to be born? And they met in this back room off of the king's palace. Man, we've got to figure out how to answer this thing. And those poor guys didn't have Google. <laughs> they didn't have any online Bible programs like Bible Hub or, or Bible... They we got to... You know, check the other scroll. Roll. Ah, here it is. The prophecy from Micah. King's going to be born in Bethlehem. Folks, think about this. If those guys knew what the Bible said about it, why were they not better prepared for it? Because they weren't believing it. It didn't meet their expectation. The Gospel of Luke tells another king-like figure, even more powerful than Herod. Herod was a powerful vicious, ruthless king. But he was only serving at the pleasure of Octavius Augustus, Octavian Augustus, better known as Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus had decided that that he was going to issue this decree that all of the people should have to go and register because they were getting ready for their new tax plan. In other words, they wanted to know exactly where you live so they could make sure you paid your tax. And Caesar had to have been proud. The whole nation of Israel was on the move because they were all going to go back to their hometowns. You see, this is interesting too. The Romans would have just done the census where they lived. For Mary and Joseph, that would have been done in Nazareth. But Herod understanding that the Jews kept better records, said, I think it would be better if they did it this way. Caesar Augustus says, all right, we'll do it the Jewish way. Everybody, register with your home, at your home, in your hometown. And so that was the reason why Mary and Joseph made the three-day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, I mean to Bethlehem. That was the reason why. Caesar is thinking, I've got the whole country moving just because I issued this order. He has no clue about this young couple coming down from Nazareth. He has no clue that in his arrogance, he will be used to fulfill the prophecy of God. That the babe, the savior, would be born in Bethlehem. So let's, let's stop right now. We're talking about Bible stories. But what, 
what is it that makes this biblical story of the birth of Christ any different than the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? What, what's, what's the difference? I mean, think about the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Do you know that story? I, I, I looked that up this week. This interesting story. The story was written in 1939 by a man by the name of Robert Louis May, and it was first published by Montgomery Ward Company. Remember them? <laughs> May's brother-in-law was a songwriter by the name of Johnny Marks, and Johnny Marks took the story that his brother-in-law had written, and he made the lyrics, and he wrote the tune. And they got the singing cowboy, Gene Autry, to record Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Interesting side note, they'd first offered it to Bing Crosby, but he was too busy having a white Christmas or something. I don't know what he was, <laughs> what he was doing, why he didn't take that song. But Gene Autry hit the top, top of the charts, Christmas week, 1949, sold two million copies that first year. But here's the difference between Rudolph and Jesus. The birth of Christ is found in the prophecy from Micah and over 300 prophecies, and it came true all in Jesus. It is okay for us to have our secular stories. It is important, critically important, that we understand the truth of this story, the veracity of this story that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. And when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we aren't following some sentimental tradition. We are celebrating the fulfillment of God's promise for all mankind for all time. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. I mean chapter, chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. See, Herod was no stranger to killing innocent people. Rather than seeking the baby to worship him, it wouldn't be long before Herod would order the death of of every male child under two years of age. Why two? Because he had asked the Magi, when did you first see the star? And they calculated it two years, and so he said to his soldiers, kill every male baby, two years and under. I'm going to wipe him out. I don't want to worship him. I want to wipe him out. I want to get rid of him. True worship leads to joy. False worship leads to death. Verse 9, after they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We need to understand that Matthew tells us the tale of two kings. The one king is the king of fear. That's Herod. He feared any other king. He had eliminated family members. He had no problem eliminating any other potential rivals. He lived his life in fear. And the other king was the king of fulfillment. 
the fulfillment of the prophecy, the birth of Christ the King, the fulfillment of what God had promised from before time began. This is what is taking place. Now, I want you to take a look at verse 10 again. And I want to look at it from several different translations. And I want you to just notice that when we look at this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. But here are several other translations. The sight of the star filled them with incredible joy. That's a J.B. Phillips translation. The Amplified Bible says, when they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. The contemporary English version says, they were thrilled and excited to see the star. The New Living says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The message says, it led them until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They were filled with joy. So let me ask you, what king do you serve? Do you serve the king of fear? Or do you serve the king of fulfillment? Where do you find your joy for this journey? Where are you in your search for the newborn king? Have those three moral failures that we talked about earlier begun to infiltrate your life? Is something else taking first place? Has something said, you don't need to do that as much? And so you have begun this backsliding process. You don't search him for him anymore. You become complacent. You said, well, I just don't have to do that. How's your search going? Because you see, we serve the king of fulfillment. We find our joy in him, but it is in an ongoing relationship with him. We never reach the point where we check it off our list and say, I've done Jesus, and now I'm going to move on. That's not the way it works. Let me ask you this question. Is there a way that we can help you in your search. On your communication card, we're going to ask you to share with us any prayer requests. Maybe if you're struggling in an area, you need to plan to write that on that card as well. How can we help you in your search? If you are not experiencing the joy that we've been talking about today, maybe you would like someone to help you understand what you need to do to begin to have that kind of joy. Let us know. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you that you give to us today an opportunity to serve you, an opportunity to follow you, but most of all, you give to us today through Christ our Lord, through the Savior, the babe born in a manger, to give to us the joy that is unspeakable, exceedingly great joy, that great calm delight that takes up residence within our hearts and our minds, 
that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Father, to the degree that today we realize that we have lost track in our journey, we've lost sight of the star, we've started following something else, help us to get back on track. Help us to look for that great day of delight, the calm delight that is the joy that is found in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.